glad that you're listening to this podcast. This podcast is a ministry of the Bonners Ferry Baptist Church and of Pastor Devin Neal. All right, would you stand, please? I want to read in Acts chapter 1. This is one of a couple of references to the Lord's return before we get into the epistles. John 14 is one of the first where Jesus said, If I go, I will come again. Acts chapter 1, verse 9. We're very familiar with verse 8. Verse 9 says, And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, uh, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? And this is the phrase I wanted to point out for tonight's message. This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Now, if you would, in Revelation chapter 1, we're going to revisit some verses we looked at last week. We're going to start reading in verse 5. We ended last week in verse 6. So we're going to review verses 5 and 6 because they link us into verse 7 and 8. So verse 5, it says, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was which is to come, the Almighty. Thank you. you. May be seated. As you study these verses, there is there is a tremendous amount of truth packed in to a few verses. It's 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 abundantly clear that John knew the Lord Jesus Christ abundantly well. Uh, he knew who he is, knew who he was. Um, he he speaks of him in a in a in a in a way that he has a tremendous grasp on the identity. Of Jesus Christ, I like to use this regularly as a an illustration. But if somebody, if I was out in town and somebody said, um, you know, who are you? And I told him, I said, well, I pastor Bonner's Ferry Baptist Church. And they say, oh, I've got a friend that goes to church there. And I said, oh, you do. And this, by the way, happens. They start describing a friend, and I'm like, not our church. Well, maybe you don't know them. No, if they went to our church, we would know it. You don't slip in and out without being known, right? And they. They describe somebody, we're not talking about the same person. Or if they said they knew one of you, said, oh, yeah. I say, well, you know, our church, there's a guy that goes there, his name's Jim Stanch. I'm like, oh, I know Jim. You know, five feet, seven inches, head full of hair and a big thick beard. Yeah, not talking about the same guy. Sorry, not the same one. There are times people begin to speak to you of Jesus and you realize we're not talking about the same person. They say something like, um, you know, he is, he is, he's, he never, I had somebody in the jail one time say, he, he never judges anybody. He's called the righteous judge. That's, that's problematic. They've gotten their doctrine and their theology from the shack, not from the Bible. Sincerely, that's what they'll tell you. They've read that book called the shack and they, they see a Jesus that doesn't judge and that's a redefinition of who Jesus is. So here's John and begins to give a vivid description of just exactly who Jesus Christ is. Last week we looked at the fact that he, introduces the Lord Jesus to us in relation to the Godhead. So he, 
He speaks to him as part of the Trinity. He starts with, in verse uh, 4, John of the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come. That's God the Father. And we know that because the next thing he says, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, that capitalized spirit doesn't mean there are seven distinct spirits, but a description of the Holy Spirit in a sevenfold manner. Uh, just like we might say, and we, did, we dealt with that last week, so speaking of the Holy Spirit, then verse 5, and from Jesus Christ. And so we're introduced again to the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 5 as one of the three persons of the Godhead, the Trinity, and he explains in detail, which we'll go over again tonight, who Jesus Christ is in defining him, verses 5 and 6. But then he's going to go on and describe him further because he's about to have a vision of Christ. Uh, down here, you'll see beginning verse 9, he says, I, John, was in the Isle called Patmos. He's going to explain the vision he had of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so coming into that, he wants to be very clear. Here's who we're talking about. Now he begins to deal with Jesus, not only from his, from his relationship into the Trinity, but his relationship to time, who Jesus Christ is in relationship to time. You're going to see over and over past, present, and future dealt with, past, present, and future, including the book of Revelation, verse 19. The outline of the book is the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which are, are to come. That's, that's the book. Revelation chapter 1 is the things which he had seen. He is testifying of who Jesus Christ is, who he had seen and handled and touched. Revelation 2 and 3 are things which are, the church age. Revelation 4 forward are things which are to come. Past, present, future. So John is going to deal with and introduce the Lord Jesus Christ as he relates to time. And so he deals with him as to what he's done, what he's going to do because of who he is. What he's done, what he's going to do because of who he is. And this helps us to know how to relate to our Lord. We can look back. Many people speak of the Lord Jesus simply as a historical figure. They think of him only as in the past, including people who've believed on him, believe he's alive from the dead, but rarely take time to think of him as the great I am. Not the great I was or the great I will be. Give me an example. Martha, John chapter 11. She said, Lord, if thou hadst been here in the past, you could have done something. My brother had not died. He said, I will raise your brother from the dead. He'll raise the dead. I know in the last day, I know you're the Lord of yesterday and I know you're the Lord of tomorrow. But the reason he is what he was yesterday and could do what he could do in the past and the reason we know he can do in the future what he's promised is because he is right now who he's always been. And that's John's emphasis is that Jesus Christ is the great I am. If you want a text to baffle, now you're going to have to get them out of their corrupt Bible, but if you want a text to baffle a Jehovah's Witness, Revelation 1 is a good place to go. I'll give you some texts that correspond with that tonight. Some of you know these already and have them probably in a margin of your Bible or somewhere written wherein Isaiah, Jehovah God, says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And then in Revelation 1, Jesus says it. I'm Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the end. If, you're, if you had some question as to who's talking in verse 8, we'll come down to verse 11 and say again, I'm Alpha and Omega. And then John has a, a vision of the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning the one who spoke in Isaiah and said, I'm Alpha and Omega, is the same one speaking in Revelation 1 saying, I'm Alpha and Omega. It's no wonder that John is writing this. He's the same one that wrote, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Verse 14 of John 1 and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. As is true to John's form, as he's used by the Spirit of God, 
to emphasize the deity of Jesus Christ, just as he did in the Gospel of John, as he did in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. So it is again in Revelation. He's emphasizing Jesus is Jehovah God in the flesh. Friend, there's nothing more. You and I, this is the foundation of our faith. When someone says they believe Jesus is someone other than Jehovah God, Creator God in flesh, you have someone who is not in Christ. That's the spirit of Antichrist. And by the way, in a time I've been told recently by someone who had a clear presentation, had a clear testimony when they trusted Christ, and then they proceeded to say that they believe Mormons were Christians. I'm like, ah. And we care for those folks. We give them the gospel. We want to see them get saved. We don't hate folks in that religion. But their Christ is not our Christ. And we must know them. And so then tonight, we'll give you three things from a few verses. If the Lord doesn't change my mind between tonight and next week, what I'd like to do next week is take a, an entire lesson to articulate. We've dealt with this, I believe, I believe we're in the book of Jude, the difference between the return and the rapture. All right, they are, they are, the second coming is divided into two parts. Because if I asked you, is Jesus coming as a thief in the night or is he coming wherever I will see him? What's the answer? There are times you read your Bible and it seems conflicting. He's going to surprise the world. He's going to show up on the scene. Uh, there's times where it says that only the believers are going to be caught up with him in the clouds. Then it says, but every eye shall see him. And the answer is both. It is in a twofold manner, just like his first coming was. Was he going to come as a babe in a manger or was he going to come as a miracle-working, uh, a miracle-working servant? And the answer is yes. He was revealed first in Bethlehem to those who were looking for him and then not until was he 30 until he was revealed publicly. He was revealed privately in Bethlehem, publicly in Cana of Galilee in John chapter 2 when he began his miracles and so forth. And you'll see a correlation between his first and second coming. So with the Lord's help, next week I want to define the two aspects of the second coming, the rapture and then the return. And we'll go through the Bible and, and, uh, and lay that out so we can see very clearly. One of the things probably helped me most in Bible prophecy was getting a hold of that truth and realizing, oh, Matthew 24 is talking about his return. First Thessalonians 4 is talking about the rapture. And one happens before the other. And so, again, unless the Lord changes my mind, we'll deal with that next week because of verse 7 that's here tonight. So tonight, let me give you the first thing. John speaks here in verses 5 and 6 of the accomplishment of the cross of Christ. And this is speaking of what Christ has done in the past. So we're saying John is presenting the Lord Jesus Christ as he relates to time, if you would see it that way. And so uh, you'll see that the Lord is referred to as he which is and which was and which is to come. That's verse 8. He's he which is and which was and which is to come. So John says in verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, who is, that's who he is, the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, that's past tense, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, that's past tense, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He's speaking of who Christ is in the present tense based on what he's done in the past. He loved us. He washed us from our sins in his blood. He's made us kings and priests. And so we dealt with this last week, so I won't, I won't belabor it. But he deals in verses 5 and 6 with the accomplishment of the cross. The accomplishment of the cross and the resurrection of the dead reveals who Jesus Christ is. He's going to deal with a number of things here. And so he starts with dealing with his power in verses 5 and 6. And we want to just articulate a few things here. Verse 5, And from Jesus Christ is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead. 
when he's called the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, the faithful witness deals with his sinless perfection, deals with the fact that he is entirely and completely trustworthy. Every word he says is true. And so the, the Lord Jesus Christ came and, and overpowered or to, had victory over defilement and deceit because he's referred to as the faithful witness. Then the Bible says he's the faithful witness and the first begotten from the dead, uh, for the first begotten of the dead. He is the first one uh, that of his own powers came out of the grave. He is what's called the first fruits of us who will be raised from the dead. So this emphasizes his power over sin and, and over deceit, over death, and then over the dominion of this world. We know that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. He's, he, there, is spiritual, he, uh, there are spiritual wickedness in high places. He's the ruler of the darkness of this world. Hebrews 2.14 tells us that the Lord Jesus defeated Satan when he raised from the dead uh, and that he overcame him who had the power of death. When John refers to Jesus as him, uh, the, uh, the prince of the kings of the earth, there's not one there's not one creation that's not under the authority and power of Jesus Christ. This is important for us to remember. John emphasizes this point in 1 John chapter 4 and 1 John chapter 5 when he tells us this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. He tells us in 5, 4, I believe it is, a greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. There are people that want to put Satan at par with Jesus. No, the Lord Jesus is the prince of the kings of the earth. This is dealing with his power and his dominion. The Bible says God has put all things under the feet of Jesus. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus said, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. There are those that believe Satan can steal people's salvation. He cannot. Christ secures salvation. The Bible says, No man is able to pluck us out of his hand. In Romans chapter 8, we're told that nothing, not principalities, not powers, not things present or things to come, not height nor depth nor death nor nakedness, peril, sword, none of those things can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. That tells us of the power of Jesus Christ over sin and deceit, over death and over all earthly dominion. There's not anything that is more powerful than Christ. Oh, that we as Christians could get a hold of this to understand the Lord Jesus and Satan are not working on the same... They're not at par when it comes to power. Satan is not omniscient. He's not omnipotent. And he's not omnipresent. He is a created being that can only do what God allows him to do. And so then our, our refuge in dealing with him is fleeing to Christ and knowing the power of Christ. We say, well, we, we pray this way, Lord, give us victory over the devil. We have that. He already accomplished that. He's the prince of the kings of the earth. Satan sought to kill Jesus. He had him crucified. The Lord Jesus submitted himself not to Satan but to God the Father to undergo that death knowing he would lay his life down and he would take it up again. Death being the tool that Satan has terrified every other person with and by the fear of death has ruled people through manipulation, not Jesus Christ. The threat of death did not hinder Jesus from obeying the Father and he died in order to obey. Something you and I are not capable of outside of him. But he did and in so doing, John is reminding us that Jesus Christ in time past, he came and he is the faithful witness because every word he says is true. He is the living word that speaks of the faithfulness of his message whether by preaching or by practice. He has power over defilement and over deceit, power over death power over dominion. And so then, and again, Hebrews 2.14 is good to have in your notes where it talks about the Lord Jesus conquering him that had the power of death and uh, using that, that fear of death to, to control people and so forth. And so um, 
John speaks of the, of the accomplishment of the cross of Christ. That's speaking of what Christ has done in past. So he speaks of his power. He speaks of his passion. Verse uh, 5, he says, Unto him that loved us. Uh, for God so loved the world. John emphasizes in the Gospel of John and in his epistle, First uh, John, uh, when he writes to the elect lady, he emphasizes love. Perfect love, he says, casteth out all fear. We love him, First John four nineteen, because he first loved us. He is reminding us that what brought Jesus to earth was his love. Uh, he loved us, and then this was the, love, the manifest of the love of God that he laid down his life for us. First John 3.16 talks about that. Of course, John 3.16 talks about that. John's reminding us again, this is the one who loved us. He preferred our life over his own. So he speaks of the Lord Jesus' power, but what he does with his power is he transfers that, and instead of using power to destroy, he used his power to save unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his blood. I'm grateful for that in his own blood. And so he, he deals with his power and then his prosperity. Jesus succeeded at what he came to do. He loved us and washed us. He came to save sinners. And guess what he's done? He succeeded. He has saved sinners. Uh, we have a room full of them tonight who used to be sinners and are now saints. And who gets credit for that? The Lord Jesus Christ, the one who loved us, paid for our sins so that our guilt can be clear. We can know with a certainty of conscience our sins are forgiven. He's washed us from our sins in his own blood. That's not all he did. He not only saved us from condemnation, he's made us kings and priests unto God. His washing blood has sanctified us so that we can serve God. We are one day going to rule and reign with him. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, we'll be judges of angels. God through Christ has succeeded in redeeming fallen men. What Satan succeeded at through Adam, God has succeeded in overcoming through Christ. Adam brought us into sin and death. The Lord Jesus brought righteousness and life and has not only washed us from our sins in his blood, but he has equipped us to serve. It's interesting. There's that twofold mention again of the death and the life of Christ. His death cleanses us from sin. His life empowers us to serve. I was getting just a snippet. I was telling my wife when we at church tonight of a, of a lecture by Leonard Ravenhill back when he was living. It was a video lecture. And, of course, there'd be some things there we wouldn't see exactly the same, but a powerful preacher of God's Word. And he's lecturing on the power of the resurrection. I was thoroughly enjoying hearing him talk about Romans chapter 5.10, how we are saved by his life. That the resurrection of Jesus Christ is what gives legitimacy to the gospel. You know what John's saying? Because Jesus conquered sin and death, he has succeeded in saving us and sanctifying us. We dealt with that some last week. He's washed us and made us kings and priests unto God. He has made us equipped and acceptable, not only for heaven. Many times we think salvation, and all we think of is, I'm not going to hell. Praise God for that. But we ought to understand in saving us, God in Christ has given us what we need to serve God. And we get to prepare for that while we serve Him on earth because we're going to serve Him in all eternity. And so then He's made us kings and priests unto God. When we were, we were previously fitted for destruction, but through Christ we've been washed and made clean and equipped for service. And so the accomplishment of the cross of Christ deals with what Christ has done when He came to earth in His incarnation, deals with the past, His power over sin and death and hell. He now has the keys of death and hell, it will say in this chapter, uh, letter B, his passion, he loved us, his prosperity washed us and made, and, uh, from our sins, 
with his own blood and has made us kings and priests unto God. And then, of course, John gives him his due praise. Verse uh, 6, To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And then he adds that great word, Amen. John says, I'm going to say something here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and then I'm going to say, and that is right, so be it. Amen. May I just remind us, there's a time to say Amen. When there's a truth spoken and our heart is in agreement, we should say, Amen, I agree with that. That is true. That's all that Amen means. And so John puts an Amen on here because he is delighted. What he's saying is because of what he's done, he is worthy to be glorified. Because of what he's done. If the Lord doesn't change direction between now and Sunday night, we're talking about how the Lord is glorified in us. We're to glorify God in our body, in our spirits. And Galatians deals with how God was glorified through Paul's mortal body. And there's a way that's done, and, and that is through the Lord Jesus Christ and His life being known through us. And so His praise, there's multiple times, if I'm not mistaken, there's at least seven times in um, the book of Revelation where the, the, the author, the penman, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes in praise, Thou art worthy, O Lord, receive glory and honor and power, and so forth, Revelation 4, Revelation 5. In heaven, the angels break into praise around the, the, the throne the, 20, the four and twenty elders begin to praise the Lamb that's on the throne. And so praise is not... So much of what we see as praise today is fabricated performance. If you see what's called praise and worship in our culture, uh, someone this week, a friend of mine, shared a video and, uh, it was a, of a service at a, supposedly at a, a church. And what was called praise and worship, there was grievous to me. It just really was. It was performance, and it was, it was, and I believe we should do our best, but this is far different than that. What's become known as praise is not spelling out why Jesus Christ is worthy to be, to be exalted as God, why He's worthy to be obeyed, why He's worthy that we should have a humble heart toward Him, submit to His will, speak of all His wonderful attributes. One of the reasons I love the old hymns, they don't speak... Many of, bear with me for a minute. Many of what we have today, the songs are called praise. The praise is, because of who Jesus is, I'm happy. Because of who Jesus is, I'm happy, happy, happy. You know, he's done this for me, and he's done this for me, and he's done this for me. They sing about Jesus like an immature lover would sing about the person they're infatuated with. I just love being around him. I just love being in his presence. He makes me feel good. That's not really praise. Praise is, he's worthy because he loved us. He's worthy because he laid down his life in obedience to God for us. He is worthy to be praised because he conquered the grave. He is worthy to be praised because he conquered sin. He's worthy to be praised because he can take a filthy sinner like me and make me a saint. He's worthy to be praised because he's conquered sin not only on earth, but in my life he's conquered it. He is worthy to be praised. And we start spelling out who he is. That's praise. This is why Jesus Christ is wonderful. He's true. He's righteous. He's holy. He's merciful. He's kind. He's long-suffering. He's patient. He's just. He's <laughs> That's praise. And then to fill in all the blanks, how do I know that? Because He pardoned me. Because He's given me victory. Because he's, he, has, he is worthy. That's, that's the idea of praise. And that's what John does here. He says, uh, to Him be glory. Now, here's, look, John, you know, John could be, if anybody could be boasting... In glorying in himself, it might be John, he is on the aisle called Patmos for faithfulness to Christ. But he doesn't say, hey, let me tell you about how wonderful I am and how faithful I've been. He says, let me tell you why I'm here. He's worthy of glory. He is worthy to live for. He's worthy to die for. To him be glory 
Not only glory, that has to do with a, a high view and honor because he's God, but to him be glory and dominion. You know what dominion is? Everyone should obey him. <laughs> he is the authority. His word should govern our lives. He's the only person we can point to and say, he is worthy and deserving that he should be fully trusted and obeyed without reservation. No human can make that claim. No human is worthy of dominion. Not all dominion. But the Bible says of him, Daniel says the same thing about him, that his kingdom is one that, has, that, that gives him dominion forever and ever. He's the, only, he's the only monarch to sit on a throne whose kingdom is so perfect that it need never end. Dominion forever and ever. And so then uh, he, John praises him. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 deals with the fact that he humbled himself and became obedient unto, the de- unto death, verses 8 through 11 in particular, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, because of his obedience on the cross, God hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There has been... Sadly, a couple of, of extremes when it comes to the lordship of Jesus Christ. There have been those who completely ignore it and see him only as the Savior who came to make me happy by dying for me and because he died for me, I'm not going to hell and I can do whatever I want. That is to ignore the lordship of Christ. I want the benefit of his salvation, but I don't want him telling him how to live my life. Then there's those over here that say, you get saved by making him lord. No, friend, he's already lord. You get saved by acknowledging that he's Lord and putting your trust in him. And there are those who would say, well, unless he's fully governing, you're not fully saved. You be careful of that. Because if that's the case, Peter wasn't saved and John wasn't saved and everybody that fled from him the night of his crucifixion wasn't saved. And then sadly, Peter wasn't saved again. We read about that in the book of Galatians when he got caught up in the dissimulation. Hey, look, your obedience to the Lord is not what saves you. It was his obedience to the Father that saves you. Proving he's Lord... And he is Lord, but here's what. When you know what he's done for you through his death on the cross, you know what our, what our response is? To him be dominion. This, what happened to John personally must, needs be in the life of every believer. I know what he's done for me, and that means I know how I must respond to him. I recognize his authority over every aspect of my life. It is his right to tell me how to think. It is only right that he should tell me how to live. It is only right that he should tell me where to live. It is only right that he should govern every facet of my life. To him be dominion. Is that not what John's saying? To him be dominion. All right, so the accomplishment of the cross of Christ causes John to speak of his power over death and sin and defilement and over dominions, his passion, he loved us and washed us, his prosperity washed us from our sins and his own blood made us kings and priests. And of course, that means he's worthy of praise and of submission. Number two, he deals with verse seven, the announcement of his coming. So in verses five and six, he speaks of the accomplishment of the cross of Christ. In verse seven, he announces the coming of Christ. So we go from the past. This is what he's done. Now he goes into the future. Now this is what he's going to do. He says, verse seven, this same one who died for us, Washed us from our sins in his blood. To him be glory and dominion forever. Behold, verse 7, he cometh with clouds and every eye shall see him and they also which pierced him and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. 
Even so, amen. With one verse, John takes a needle and he threads the book of Daniel to the book of Matthew and all the way over to the book of Revelation and ties it all together. Look, if you would, very quickly with me at Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. This, this that John says in Revelation 1-7 is almost verbatim what Daniel says hundreds of years prior to John in his vision of the Lord Jesus Christ in Daniel 7. Daniel 7 in verse 13, he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. How about that? And came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. They're speaking of the same. There's our word again, those words again. Daniel and John are speaking of the same person, this one that's coming with clouds, and every eye shall see him. Daniel looked way off into the future in the visions of the night and saw Jesus Christ ruling and reigning over God's creation. John sees it, says, Behold, he cometh. He's not. This has not happened yet, but he's going to come and establish his kingdom on this earth. And I find it interesting, by the way, when John wrote this, um, I would see the book of Revelation. It doesn't really matter. The Bible doesn't say when it was written. All we know is it's the last book penned in the Bible. Those who want to think that Jesus came in A.D. 70 or that the tribulation came in A.D. 70 have a lot of explaining to do, really, because there's a lot of unfulfilled prophecy that should have happened, like the revealing of the Antichrist and all these kind of things. But what you see here is at the time of this writing, you know who had not come yet and established his kingdom? The Lord Jesus Christ. And it hasn't happened yet. So the prophecy, behold, he cometh, it ties into Daniel 7. You know what John's saying? In wording this by the Spirit of God, because the Holy Spirit gave Daniel the words to write, and he gave John the words to write, we're talking about the same person. You see how he keeps weaving past, present, and future together? Because God, who is the only... The, the Bible only uses the word uh, eternal, if I'm not mistaken, one time. Uh, and that is in Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15, eternity. Uh, God who inhabiteth eternity. It's the only time in your King James Bible the word eternity is used. A number of new translations take where, I believe it's, I believe it's uh, Ecclesiastes says that he's put placed the world in our hearts. And new translations will say that God has put eternity in our hearts. That's not what your King James Bible says. So the only time eternity is mentioned in the Bible is Isaiah 57, 15, speaking of the Lord. He inhabits eternity, meaning in Daniel chapter 7, the things that we see now as past with God were, were they were, they were as, as they were, had already occurred. God sees the end from the beginning. And so then here we see that John says, Behold, he cometh with clouds. It's a reference back to Daniel's prophecy. Look at Zechariah chapter 12. It's also a reference to the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 12. And so we see, by the way, any true prophet never speaks in conflict with the Scripture but in harmony with what has already been written. What John writes in Revelation is simply in, in, in exact congruity with everything already written before of this coming day when the Lord would establish His kingdom. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, verse 9, It shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem, and I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications, uh, and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son, 
and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. So when John writes in Revelation 1.7, he says, Behold, he cometh with clouds. That's what Daniel saw. And every eye shall see him. That's what Matthew 24, verse 30 says. And they also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. John gets uh, very specific here. He's speaking of his return, that it is certain. Behold, he cometh. It is imminent. He doesn't say it's this many years down the road. He's coming. Uh, but then the revelation that's, that's going to take place, he says, every eye shall see him, and he's going to add this, and they which pierced him. That tells us some of the things when we dealt with are dealing specifically with the nation of Israel. That's what it's talking about. The nation of Israel uh, pierced the Lord Jesus Christ. They pierced the, the Messiah that came. Of course, they did so with a spear in his side through the, the, the Roman soldier there. But the Bible speaking specifically of some fulfillments when he says, they which pierced him, that are dealing with Jerusalem and that part of the world and the Jewish people. We'll see that as we go through Revelation. Uh, But nonetheless, what happens is the same Jesus Daniel wrote about, the same Jesus in Matthew 24, verse 30, said, The Son of Man cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. The same Jesus that Zechariah wrote about is the same Jesus that John's writing about. He's nailing down, who am I writing about? I am writing about the one who was slain before the foundation of the world. Very important we understand uh, that, that Jesus is not the imagination of some man. He is God in the flesh. And we see that in what he's done in time past. But we see that in the promise of what he's going to do in the future. And he's going to come and his own kindred who pierced him will see him and wail. The Bible says they'll wail because of him. This is dealing with the fact. If we know Old Testament prophecy, you understand what John is about to start writing about then is what the Old Testament calls the day of the Lord. It's not a day of light and gladness. It's a day of sorrow, a day of mourning when they see Christ and realize he, the one we rejected is the one we should have received, they'll wail because of him. There's going to be wailing on this earth. The day of the Lord is not a happy time. And I, I read uh, this week in reading, uh, one of the authors was reading after, two of the authors I read after, they, they made a, a, a tremendous point which needs to be made. Prior to the book of Revelation, there were a number of things said about the second coming, and many times you can't tell, is it speaking about the establishment of the kingdom or the catching away of the saints? And once you have revelation, it allows us to understand so much prophecy that was written before. The book of Revelation helps us understand 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 and 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2. Revelation is not written to confuse us about prophecy. It's written to clarify. John is making it clear that what I'm writing about is what Jesus spoke about in Matthew 24. It's what Zechariah wrote about in Zechariah 12. It's what Daniel wrote about in Daniel chapter 7. The event I'm going to write to you about has been on God's calendar since eternity past. And every now and then he gives somebody in history a glimpse of what's coming. And now I'm writing to you about the exact same thing, not to confuse us, but to to clarify we're dealing with the day of the Lord and some of the things that God has promised in addressing the sins of his people and in and, and, and final restoration of the nation of Israel. And so the accomplishment of the cross of Christ, he deals with what he's done in the past. The announcement of the coming Christ, that's what Christ is going to do in the future. And then look at verse 8. John stops talking and God interrupts. Verse 8, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Then John says, saith the Lord, I am Alpha and Omega. What he's reminding us of, because John doesn't start by saying, the Lord says, no, He just immediately interjects, God is speaking in the first person here in verse 8, through the writing of Scripture, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Because of who God is, 
It's why he has done what he's done, and it's why we can be confident that he's going to do what he says he'll do. And may I say this? This reminds us once again of the value of prophecy in the Bible, the value of recorded history in the Bible. God records what he's done in history, and God records what he's going to do in the future so that you, can, you and I can understand who God is today. My heart for preaching the book of Revelation to you and I is not so we can get our head up in the clouds and forget about who God is today, but by looking off into the future and what He says He's going to do, He links it back to what He's done so that we might remember who He is today. The Lord God is right now. He's not that I was Alpha and Omega. I will be Alpha and Omega. He said, I am Alpha and Omega. He uses the letters of the Greek alphabet and that refers to communication and words and knowledge, does it not? Alpha and Omega refers to knowledge. What God is saying, I'm omniscient. I know everything. I'm the first letter. I'm the last letter. Do you realize every thought we communicate requires some some kind of alphabet, some kind of communication? What God is saying, I'm not only able to communicate with you, I am the creator of your alphabet. I am the communicator. All knowledge proceeds from God. Now, Satan takes the knowledge that God gives and perverts that and deceives and lies. But there, all true knowledge comes from God. There is no counsel against the Lord, Proverbs says. There's no wisdom against God. And so, I'm Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, is reference to His omniscience. The Lord knows everything. He knows, again, the end from the beginning. And so then, uh, John is ending with who Jesus Christ is. Yes, He's the one who suffered and died for us. Yes, He's the one who's coming again to establish a kingdom on earth because He is, as He said in John eight fifty eight, before Abraham was, I am. And so then, He's reminded that the great I am is omniscient. He has all knowledge. Uh, let's look very quickly as we conclude. Isaiah chapter 41. Isaiah... Chapter 41. I just want to read a few verses here where it's very clearly Jehovah God speaking. And then we can see very clearly in Revelation 1, it's Jesus Christ speaking. Isaiah 41. By the way, he who is referred to as capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Normally that's how we in our English Bible have the the name, Hebrew name for God, Jehovah, is normally as Lord sometimes. We have it transliterated as Jehovah. Uh, But he who's called Jehovah in the Old Testament is called capital L-O-R-D. In the New Testament, Lord. And so Isaiah chapter 41, uh, verse 4. Who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning, I the Lord. You'll notice all caps. That's Jehovah. The first and with the last, I am He. When I read I am He, Jesus said to the Pharisees, Except ye believe that I am He, ye shall die in your sins. Unless you believe that I am He, Jehovah God of the Old Testament, you'll die in your sins. And so then... Uh, that's Isaiah 41, 4. Look at Isaiah 44, verse 6. Isaiah 44, verse 6. Thus saith the Lord, that's Jehovah again, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. And beside me there is no God. And then we look at Isaiah chapter 48, verse 12. Isaiah 48, verse 12. Hearken unto me, O Jacob, and Israel my called. I am he, I am the first, I also am the last. And then here again in Revelation chapter 1, in verse 8, I am Alpha and Omega. That's the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last. Dealing with knowledge, omniscience. The beginning and the ending. The Lord Jesus is the creator of all things, and he's the one that's going to end all things at his word. Uh, The beginning and the ending. Hebrews 12 says it this way, the author 
and the finisher of our faith. So I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. And so he deals with three aspects that we often speak of. His omniscience, he's Alpha and Omega. He says, I am he which is and which was and which is to come. That's his omnipresence. He is present in every place and at all time because he's Lord and God. And then, of course, he's dealing with his omnipotence. In the end of this verse, he says, and is referred to as the Almighty. Now, if you skip down to verse 11, or verses 10 and 11, John says, and we're in Revelation 1, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet, saying, I'm Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What thou seest, write in the book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and unto Pergamos, and unto Thyatira, and unto Sardis, and unto Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his foot. So who is it says in verse 11, I am Alpha and Omega? Plain and clear. Who is it says it? Jesus Christ. So Jesus himself is saying, I am Jehovah. From Isaiah 41, the omniscient one, the omnipresent one, the omnipotent one. Isaiah 9, 6 says, um, Unto us a son is given, unto us, a, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government should be upon his shoulders, and the name should be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, so on and so forth. He's called here the Almighty. Jesus Christ is the, the Almighty. He is the, the Lord God, Jehovah. So what John is emphasizing, again, before we get into the particulars, of the message to the church is when I say the revelation of Jesus Christ, who am I talking about? I'm talking about the one that came and became in flesh and loved us and humbled himself, died for us, washed us from our sins. I'm talking about the one we know the history about, the one who died for us. I'm talking about the one that's coming again to establish his kingdom. And the one who died for us, the one who's coming again is the great I am. He is he which was, which is, which is to come. Jesus Christ, Hebrews 13, verse 8, the same yesterday and today and forever. A lot of doctrine tonight, but don't miss this. Doctrine is what your faith is built on. And when there are times that the Satan wants to get you thrown on whether or not you can trust Jesus Christ, you remember this. God has woven who Jesus Christ is throughout the entirety of this Bible. That is nothing short of a miracle. There's no way there could be coordination between Daniel and Zechariah and John. <laughs> no way. Only God. Only God. You know what you can rest here tonight? The one who died for you is coming again. and Therefore, he's in our midst right now. That brings what he's done and what he's promised to do are true because of who he is. The third point in verse 8 was the affirmation of his character. We saw the accomplishment of his cross, the announcement of his coming, verse 7, but the affirmation of his character in verse 8 it's as though God's saying, what he's telling you I've done, what he's telling you is true, is true because of who I am. A man is only as good as his word, right? And his word is the revelation of his character. Well, we can bank on his word because he is the great I am. Amen? Amen. We can say with John, amen. When John says that all the folks on earth are going to wail because of him, he says, even so, even so, amen. We always rejoice in the truth, amen? Mm-hmm. 